It's five years since Saudi Arabia first intervened in the fighting in Yemen. What's life like in the middle of the world's worst humanitarian crisis? Plus, how Saudi arms imports have soared in the years since the Yemen conflict began. And if you thought you'd seen the back of Vladimir Putin, think again. I'm Kate Chabot, and this is SITREP. So, five years since Saudi Arabia first intervened in the crisis in Yemen, it's escalated into the world's worst humanitarian disaster, with four million people said to have been displaced and many at risk of starvation. Yet, after an apparent lull in the fighting and even faint hopes of peace, aid agencies are now warning a surge in fighting has left even more people at risk. Well, meanwhile, figures released this week show Saudi Arabia has more than doubled its arms imports, with Britain contributing a significant proportion. We'll talk more about that in a moment. But first, I spoke a little earlier to Farid al Khomaid from the International Committee of the Red Cross, who's in Yemen's capital, Sana'a. He told me about the realities of life in the country for millions of people. The current situation in Yemen is catastrophic. For more than 24 out of 30.5 million Yemenis in need of humanitarian aid, the wait is long. Every aspect of their lives is impacted. In general, 2019 saw certain improvements in the most affected areas, but much more must be done. And time is playing against the people of Yemen. There is need for a political solution and at least a ceasefire to end the fighting. What's it like for someone like you working there? All aspects of life is impacted in a way or another, uh, whether close to front lines or away from front lines. If you're close to front lines, you are exposed to danger. Also, those who are in safe places, they are indirectly affected. People cannot afford to buy their essential needs, their, their basic needs, food. They don't have access to clean water. And, and they don't have access to health care. Everything is, is, is really at a, a point of, of break. It's five years since the start of this conflict, and yet Yemen rarely makes the headlines around the world. How do you think the international community has responded to what's happening in Yemen? The assistance is being provided or has been provided is, is not enough to fill the gap. Uh, the needs are so great. Uh, and um, people need a, a political solution. People need peace. I mean, it's impossible to to respond to what is um, the humanitarian crisis in Yemen with only assistance. Five years from now, we can clearly tell that humanitarian assistance is, is not enough. Uh, peace is really needed so people can start rebuilding their lives. That was Farid al Humaid from the International Committee of the Red Cross in Yemen. Well, let's turn to BFBS defence analyst Christopher Lee. Christopher, the fighting in Yemen has its roots in a failed attempt at a political transition. Remind us how we got here and why the Saudis are involved. We, we got here, but it's all started in, in 2011. If you remember, the whole region, really Saharan Africa, um, Tunisia, Egypt, and then eventually uh, into Syria was the Arab Spring. It was the great period of, of revolution, and so it was in Yemen. And Yemen was then run by a man called uh, Ali Abdullah Saleh. And he had a system of running things, and that was this. He would say to everybody, what do you need? And they would tell him, 
And if he think, th thought he could give it to them, he would, and that would satisfy everybody. It wasn't the ideal way to run a country, but it was the way he ran it, and he ran it for a long time. But eventually, with the gradual revolution, he went. He was kicked out. And it was kicked out, and Mansur Hadi sort of took over. Now, then we jump. We jumped to about 2014, and the important, the Houthi movement that we talk about, who are Shia Muslims, very important to remember this, Shia Muslims, they're not Sunnis, um, they got control of the great province of Sada, and others joined uh, Houthis, uh, and eventually they took over the capital. Now, here we have the, the, the Saudi Arabians look at this, and they say, Hang on, these guys are uh, these, these guys are not Sunnis. These guys are Shias. Iran are Shias. This, in fact, is Iran taking over this great uh, country, and we're not going to have this. And so they started that begun begun the war that involved not just uh, Saudi Arabia trying to obliterate the the, the Houthis because largely because they because they support the the Shias. But they did it with the, the the other Sunnis in the area, mainly in the Gulf states, and with the help of uh, other people like the Americans and the British and the French. So a proxy war with seemingly no end in sight. No end in sight. In, in, in spite of these sort of... Uh, there, there have been various sort of conferences, such as the Stock, there was an agreement, Stockholm Agreement, in 2018. Um, there was another hope in 2020, the beginning of this year, um, that it would all, be, you'd be able to get round it. But what happens is that the hood is uh, better armed, uh, more determined. You know, the, the, this is a society which has which has replaced uh, uh, re replaced dignity with, with tragedy. How, how do you think history will view Yemen? Uh, Yemen is one of the says Yemen was one of the bits of that Arab Spring that not only went wrong, but almost destroyed a whole peoples. Probably, at least, uh, if you believe Akled, the armed conflict location and event data project, um, probably, probably up to 100,000 uh, civilians have, have died. Christopher, stay with us. Still to come, how Vladimir Putin plans to become president for life. And we report from Britain's growing mission in Africa. The generation that's coming behind us at the moment, they don't have the same operational experience for a military. You know, maintaining your operational credibility and your operational experience is, is fundamental. Now, as we've just been saying, Saudi Arabia leads the group of mostly Sunni Arab states that intervened in Yemen in 2015. And this week, new figures show how much that's propelled the country's demand for weapons. The Saudis have dominated the arms market during the five years of the conflict, increasing their purchases of combat aircraft, missiles and guided bombs by 130%. The UK's had a significant role selling the Saudis' Hawk trainer aircraft and paveway guided missiles. The data comes from the Stockholm International Peace Research Institute and Peter Vesserman is a senior researcher in its arms and military expenditure programme and joins us now. Uh, Peter, good to speak to you today. Thank you for your time. The Saudis have bought a huge number of weapons in the past five years. Can we assume that much of it has been for use in Yemen? 
I think much of it is either for use in Yemen or it is for use in deterring Iran. These two things, as already has been said, um, hang very closely together. But what we can say is very many of the weapons which we see, some of the weapons which you already mentioned, for example, the combat aircraft that has been that have been supplied by the UK over the past decade, and particularly in the past five years, and also by the US, we see those in combat being used in Yemen. So it is those weapons which Saudi Arabia has acquired over the years um, that now actually in those past five years have been used by Saudi Arabia. Uh, I think you can say for the first time in operations that are truly led by Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia was a major importer also in previous periods, but now it's even more than that. And again, now they actually have uh, decided to use those arms, uh, particularly in the conflict in Yemen. And the US is by far the largest supplier to the Saudis. Just how significant a player is the UK? Well, the UK, according to our estimates, would be responsible for a significant part, something like about, we estimate, uh, about 13-15% of the weapons that uh, Saudi Arabia imports, and then the US would be uh, responsible for about 75% around that number. But maybe it's also important to put this the other way around and to stress that uh, Saudi Arabia is such an important arms market for the uh, British arms industry. Uh, the British arms industry aims for the, the internal market, of course, but when it comes to exports, uh, Saudi Arabia is by far the largest arms export market for uh, British arms industry in the past five years, accounting for more than one third of those arms exports. Have the UK sales to Saudi Arabia remained stable or have they increased or decreased? Um, they were very high in the past decade. Um, that was particularly due to some major deals, in particular the deal for um, Typhoon combat aircraft with all the kind of missiles and bombs and the related equipment surrounding that. Um, over the past few years, we see that that project has basically now come to an end and there is no immediate follow-up to that. So right now, there are the, the deals that are in place between Saudi Arabia and the UK do not include the kind of really big uh, plans for major deliveries in coming years. There have been plans, but those have been uh, hindered by the export restrictions that are in place uh, in the UK right now and also in Germany, which supplies components for equipment that the UK can supply to Saudi Arabia. Yes, on that note, Christopher Lee, our defence analyst, is listening. And Christopher, last year the government had to suspend new arms export licences to the Saudis after a court ruling. Uh, hasn't stopped the flow of weapons from existing deals. It's the existing deals where the a deal when it when it's signed before it's signed there has to be a thing called the end user certificate and that is where is that weapon going to it might be going on to somebody else of course but how how might it be used and maybe used in in circumstances which the United Kingdom cannot support up until the court ruling there was no question that the weapons that the United Kingdom was was selling to Saudi Arabia um, they were okay as far as British if you like the, the moral instincts but there's something else in this when you sell an airplane for example uh, you sell the whole training project you 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 sell a system where you're going to be there for many years uh, showing uh, showing them how to use it how to how, how to use it in combat how to use it internally how to use it in in, in long distance if necessary also you 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 sort of take them on board. You become part. You become an ally in whatever project. And one of the difficulties with, with war in, in in Yemen, that the United Kingdom, with people actually in the United Kingdom, uh, who who are who can advise the Saudi Arabians how to use these weapons, for example, 
um, they they almost become part of that war, and they get, certainly get this, the accusation that they are part of that war. They're, they're adding far more than just selling a, 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 a few aeroplanes and a, and, and a few and a few weapon system. The United Kingdom, as we just heard, 13, 14 percent of Saudi mm. imports, defence imports. That's a lot of hardware. Peter Vesaman, um, it's not just the Saudis. The flow of arms to the Middle East has increased in the last five years, hasn't it? Oh, yes, it has. Um, I think it's the region which has seen the by far largest increase in uh, arms imports in the world. Uh, elsewhere in the world, we even saw, saw to some extent in Asia, for example, a bit of a decrease. That may change in the coming years again. But for now, the Middle East has been the, the, the region with the biggest uh, increase. And we see, for example, how a country like Egypt, which has rapidly increased its arms imports over the past uh, five years, despite the fact that it is in an economic cri crisis. And there is also a strong linkage there with Saudi Arabia because there's quite some, uh, some let's say, rumours that Saudi Arabia is at least partly bankrolling those arms acquisitions by Egypt. We see also a major increase in uh, arms imports by Qatar, which for the first time is now amongst the 10 largest arms importing countries in, in the world. And also there again is, of course, that linkage with Saudi Arabia because the two countries have now since 2017 been at two opposite sites. And, and actually in a kind of a, uh, uh, yeah, a conflict it isn't yet but there is very strong tensions between between the two countries and Saudi Arabia has put an embargo on on Qatar so these weapons kind of are part of that broader uh, level of increased tension within the region. Peter Vesemann, thank you for your time today that was Peter Vesemann from the Stockholm International Peace Research Institute. Now, the death of a British soldier in Iraq is a reminder of the dangers still facing personnel based abroad. A member of the Royal Army Medical Corps was one of three people to die in a rocket attack on the Taji base north of Baghdad. Well, while the UK involvement in Iraq is now minimal, operations in Africa are being stepped up. Hannah King has been exploring how British forces are working across the continent. Okay. we have three types of ports. Field tactics in the pouring rain in the lush green forests of Malawi. A young British sergeant looks on, observing the lesson being taught by the newly trained Malawian instructor. Finally, the rain stops, allowing him to deliver some valuable feedback. So when you're teaching, relate that back to your experience because you've been on many patrols within the DRC. Yes, sir. Yeah, exactly. So tr just try and get your, your experience in because your in experience is invaluable. This 11-strong unit of trainers is put in place by the British Peace Support Team, or BPST. They fly small teams of UK personnel over for three or four weeks at a time to deliver training packages to African militaries. Originally only responsible for East Africa, their work is now spreading across the continent. Their commander, Colonel Chippy Minton, says demand for them is growing. The range of activities that we deliver, it's military, it's police, it's counter-proliferation, it's maritime security. There's a whole raft of activities that we do that really nobody else does. Uh, and until such time as we decide we don't want to do them anymore, um, we are the only people that do them. We cost about £13 million in total a year. That includes all of the activities that we deliver. At the moment we work in 15, 16, 17 countries. That number is increasing as we expand westwards. We are fairly unique and, and I think that's recognised. Um, and I think the demand for us is going up rather than down. 
So what does Brexit mean in Africa? Following the EU split, the UK is looking to the huge continent for new partners and trading deals. British High Commissioner Holly Tett says the armed forces are helping open doors in the African countries they operate in. The fact that we have left the EU does not mean that we are leaving our responsibilities as a global international player. If anything, we want to step that up even more. And so all of the British stakeholders, whether that's government ministries like the Foreign Office, Ministry of Defence, uh, DFID, or whether that's some of the other stakeholders like the British Army, British businesses, British charities, all of us need to work together to make sure that we are relevant and continue to be very relevant internationally. And I think, of course, the Army has a huge role to play in that. Happy, sir. Guys, that's great. Stack up on the tree again. Whilst requests for support from the British Peace Support Team continue to flood in, there is a case for us also deploying more troops directly on UN operations. Colonel Chippy Minton again. If you look at my generation, we've got a lot of brigadiers and colonels and lieutenant colonels and some majors with, with a lot of operation experience from, from the 90s as well as sort of Afghanistan and Iraq. Uh, but we're, we're moving on. We're leaving, we're retiring, and the generation that's coming behind us at the moment, the sort of captains, the sergeants and below, are uh, they don't have the same operational experience, even the same expeditionary experience as the generation that I, that I represent. The kind of activities that we do, so the, the, the short-term training teams, it's good and you can learn an awful lot, but it's not the same as, as operations. And for a military, you know, maintaining your operational credibility and your operational experience is, is fundamental. Doing more on UN operations it allows you to, to maintain that operational experience and the relevance uh, whilst also contributing to something that has direct international relevance. It also helps the UN plug essential gaps in its skill set, engineering in South Sudan or the long-range reconnaissance capability the Light Dragoons will provide in Mali. Planning of the new post-Brexit UK-UN relationship is, we are told, almost complete and a report is due out in September. In the meantime, the work of the British Peace Support Team looks set to continue as it spreads across the continent. was Hannah King with that report. While much of the UK's military work in Africa is confined to training local forces, 250 British personnel will be sent to Mali later this year to join a UN peacekeeping mission there. But critics have said there's no peace to keep and instead the troops will be actively engaged in counterinsurgency operations. Christopher Lee, um, some reports compare the situation in Mali to that of Afghanistan, prompting that warning, that letter by former defence chiefs, that we risk repeating the mistakes we made in Afghanistan. What mistakes were they talking about? Well, that letter was signed right at the top by the uh, chief of the defence staff, uh, uh, General Richards. Now, he actually should have learned all the mistakes um, and turned them into sort of uh, experience. And I think that it should not be ignored when you send, you send uh, somebody on a UN peacekeeping mission and you put them into a strange place like Mali. They haven't been before but they have been to Afghanistan or they have been to Iraq. And these then become seasoned soldiers, not just peacekeepers. Should be, should be, shouldn't be forgotten. Do you buy that argument, though, that there's no peace to keep there and that they are being sent into counterinsurgency operations when they go? The whole of that area, which is sort of between the Sahara right down to the savannah of Sudan, is now an operational area. 
And wherever you send soldiers there, they have to be told up, they have to be ready to say this is an operation which you've got to treat not just simply as a how to build bridges and, the co- and a couple of, and a couple of uh, surgeries. Now, it's, different, it's a different sort of place. Africa is the most important uh, soldiering operational, certainly at, at, at infantry level, operational area that we'll probably have in the next 10 years. And clearly the UK sees Africa as increasingly important. How great, though, is the risk of walking into a situation that we don't fully understand? Uh, well, you know, the, the, the descendants of General Richards are quite smart. And, in fact, I would put it the other way. You'll be glad to hear that. <laughs> uh, well, I suppose they are. Um, listen, um, I'm, I'm telling you, the, the people that are running this are not just going along with a set of sort of rules that have been handed up in, in the United Nations. They are experienced people. They're well-led. Um, and I think that you walk into an area and you say, this is going to be operational in, in 12 hours. You, you're doing that because A, there's the danger, and B, that's partly what you're there for. Mm, as with Afghanistan, potentially easier to go in than to get out. And there was a lot of talk in, in Afghanistan about mission creep at the time, wasn't there? Do you know, I am so old. I am so <laughs> old, or nearly so old. My first war was really Vietnam. And I remember, I remember thinking in Saigon, you can get in, but how the hell do you get out of any conflict like this? Mm. And those same sort of questions have been applied uh, to British soldiers, not in Vietnam, because we didn't go there, but been applied to places like Northern Ireland, Afghanistan, Iraq. Um, and so it is a question which is asked. The answers are probably smarter now than they were. We heard a lot in, in Hannah's report about the expanding role in Africa being part of Britain's post-Brexit plan. An example of the military being used as a form of soft power, do you think? Uh, not really. No, <laughs> no, 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 not n- not really. Uh, Africa. I think is it just n- sounds good, do you? Well, I don't even know that. But <coughs> I'm telling you, Africa. What's going on in Africa at the moment? And you consider simply the resources and the numbers of countries involved, and issues involved that we hadn't considered, say, ten years ago, like climate change, and what is m- happening with the movement of people and and the the seeking of revenge then I think that you've got to have pretty sort of uh, smart forces to send there, not just to send a few peacekeepers. Christopher, stay with us. BFBS. The Forces Station. Forces Station. Now, earlier this year, Vladimir Putin proposed wide-ranging constitutional reforms in Russia. At the time, many speculated his primary motivation was a desire to be president for life. But it wasn't clear how he would pull that off. Well, now it is. Putin is backing a change which would effectively clear the way for him to remain in power until well into the next decade. To explain how, we're joined by the Russia analyst Stephen Diel. Uh, Stephen, good to speak to you. He's backing a proposal which would change the rules of the Russian state and make it as if his four previous presidential terms never happened. Yes, it's a new Russian form of uh, year zero. Um, <laughs> basically, it's been put forward, put forward rather sadly in a way by Valentina Tereshkova, who, of course, is famous for being the first woman in space. And it just seems very sad when someone who is in their 80s is being used as a political pawn to say, oh, this is what the people want. And then Putin comes forward to the to the doom of the Russian parliament, where he rarely appears. Uh, and says, well, you know, I don't want this, but if this is what the people want, then this is what I'll do. It's it's just a, it's, it's a big game. Everyone knows that Putin wants to stay on. And the main reason why he wants to stay on 
is because he doesn't dare step down. He trusts no one. His predecessor, Boris Yeltsin, stepped down on the 31st of December 1999 because he was old, he was an alcoholic, he, he wasn't well, um, and, and it was just too much for him. And he, he, all he wanted was a guarantee of security and, 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 and that he wouldn't be prosecuted for the rest of his life. Putin can't do that. Putin is, is terrified that if he steps down, someone will actually have it in for him. Why can't he protect himself? Because he doesn't trust anyone. Because, he, you know, it's a classic situation of keep your friends close and your enemies closer still. And even those who, people he's known for years, because of his whole KGB background, um, the KGB doesn't trust anyone. The KGB is, is suspicious of, of everyone. Um, and, and so he, he thinks, I cannot hand power over to anyone in the hope that they would then protect me because they may turn around and stick a knife in my back. Mm, so if this happens, he could stay in office until he was what well into his 80s. So we really are into a president for life scenario. We, we are indeed. Um, so what so what they're saying is, right, you know, it's it's a it's a fair playing field and a level playing field for everyone. So come the next elections in 2024, anyone can stand for president, including the uh, the, the current president, because all his previous uh, terms in office won't count. Um, and, of course, it's now a six-year term. When he was originally elected in uh, 2000, it was a four-year term. It's now a six-year term. So that, uh, And then he's sticking to this thing in the Constitution where it says a president can serve only for two consecutive terms but can come back. So uh, without having to change that part of the Constitution, he can then serve you know, another, uh, another 12 years. Um, taking us up to 2036 when we'll be 83. Stephen, stay with us because we're going to explore the motives for this. Here's the journalist Gavin Esler, who's been investigating Vladimir Putin and his influence on the world for a new podcast series called The Putin Paradox. It does appear that Russia has gone from communism uh, to kleptocracy in a generation and that the biggest beneficiary has been Vladimir Putin himself. He's been called by one of the people we talked to a trillion dollar criminal. Now, it doesn't mean he's got that in his bank account, but he, has, he and his friends have profited greatly from the way in which they run Russia. And we looked at, in one case, Yukos, the biggest oil company in Russia, which was basically taken over by Putin and his cronies. That was Gavin Esler. Uh, Stephen Diel, uh, we think of Putin as this strongman puppet master pulling all the strings. Is that accurate? Pretty well. Um, his Again, it's his, it's his whole background. In fact, not just KGB, but if we go right back to his childhood, um, he was uh, a, a weakling uh, living in a rough area of St. Petersburg. He learned to use his fists, and that's when he also started to do judo. That was his way of actually looking after himself physically. Then he joins the KGB, and as I say, they, they don't trust anyone. Um, so he's, he's, he's fought his way up, as it were, figuratively and literally. Um, when he became president, I don't think he, he quite saw the scenario as it panned out. The thing is now, as um, Gavin suggested there, because it's become a kleptocracy and he has become so filthy rich, I mean, just unbelievably wealthy, possibly the wealthiest man in the world, who knows, it, it becomes irrelevant. He's got so much um, money as well as power that he just wants to hang on to that. And as I suggested earlier, he's afraid that others might want to take it off him. So he's developed into this creature that is just, um, well, as they say, you know, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And that's certainly what's happened to Putin. So, so the prospect of Putin president for life, how does a country like Britain respond? Because Russia murdered people on British soil, seemingly carried out a chemical attack in Britain, a huge cyber threat, may well have tried to interfere in elections here. The man who's overseen this, well, he could be around for 16 years. 
He could. And um, di diplomats, of course, would say, well, we must have you know, relations with Russia. You can't just ignore Russia. But at the same time, you can't be weak uh, against Russia. If any weakness with Russia, and particularly someone like Putin, he's a bully. He'll push you further. You need to stand up to him. You need to hold him to account and say, look, you know, we are not going to forget what happened in Salisbury two years ago. Uh, we're not going to forget the Litvinenko case. Um, and if it makes for frosty diplomatic relations, then so be it. You can't just allow the Russians, and Putin in particular, to walk all over us. Good to speak to you, Stephen Dale. Thank you for your time. Now, before we go, uh, Christopher, the budget was obviously dominated by the response to the coronavirus outbreak, but there was an effort to do something for the military. This £10 million being put into the Armed Forces Covenant. What do you make of that? Ten million, ten million pounds is billion pounds. Eventually, will is going to be tremendous because what it will do, it will take people who left the armed forces, who perhaps had hard lives after that, couldn't quite handle civilian life, and doing all sorts of things, including having to sleep on the streets at night, but having difficulties in coping with a, a civilian world. That money will be used to help those people, and that's the first time. That sort of money has been put up. It's very important. Incidentally, by the way, about Putin, you know who changed the rules about staying in, in staying for life? The Americans. Hmm. Theodore Roosevelt and Putin reads all Roosevelt, and that's where he got the idea from. Mm. Just to, just to go back to the, the the budget, was there anything else that you thought was? A, I mean, is it is it showing a change in attitude towards veterans? Do you think? No, but there were. There, it's not a change of. It's not showing a change of attitude. There was a change of attitude, but nobody was doing anything about it. This guy has actually said we're going to do something about it. And this is what we're going to do. But it now is up to the MOD to actually do it. And the weakest part of all these handouts and, and money in in the MOD is the MOD. Christopher, you had to end on that note, didn't you? Thank you. Thanks to all of our guests today. Don't forget, you can get in touch on Twitter. We're at BFBS SITREP. And while you're online, you can sign up for the podcast. Just search for SITREP wherever you download your podcasts. Until next time, I'm Kate Chabot. Thank you for listening. Bye-bye for now.